District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. All right, everyone, we have Margaret Byfeld of American Stewards for Liberty joining us on the podcast this week to talk about why 3030, the controversial so-called conservation proposal that has been billed as a true conservation measure by the Bund administration and some in the conservation, but more so preservationist sphere as an issue to to not have any concern with. We've talked about it here on the podcast, but I recently connected with her and we're going to be exploring this topic more next year in 2022, possibly for my Conservation Nation film series. And I wanted her to talk about the grassroots level in terms of opposition to 3030 and why it's building up. Margaret, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Really, really a pleasure to be on and talking to you. What led you to get interested in natural resources issues? Well, I was raised on a ranch in Nevada, and um, my family filed a case in 1991 called Hage versus United States. It was the first federal lands grazing takings case in Nevada, and that culminated after 13 years of incredible regulatory harassment from the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. And they wanted to extinguish our right to graze on that property. And so we fought them for a number of years culminated in the case and fought the case for 27 years. And just, you know, growing up in that environment and just seeing firsthand how much power the federal government has to control people and their property when they own so much of the land and can control the land. It really is, is, is really the issue that gave me the passion for the property rights issues and really the heart to fight for these issues for all Americans. And could you explain what your organization does and some of your policy aims? Yes, we are a property rights organization. Our mission is to protect property rights and the liberties they secure. And that's really important because I think sometimes people think of property rights as just land, but that's not what it is. Property rights is everything. It's from our ability to secure our property. A gun right is a property right, um, to have a bank account, to have a home and secure our home, uh, to make a living. All of these things are property rights. And so our mission, while we focus a lot and work a lot with landowners, our mission is broader than that because we understand that property rights secure all other liberties. And so that gets us into a lot of issues, but primarily we work with America's landowners. And we do everything from uh, work on campaigns like this, the 30 by 30 campaign, to we have a delisting program where we file petitions to get species off the list that either never should have been listed or should be off the list now because they don't warrant the federal protection and the science doesn't support that. Um, so we work on issues all over. We, we are, I kind of look at us as the boots on the ground. We work directly with the landowners and I'm in the communities all the time. I think I told you I was in Chavez County, New Mexico last week. Um, I'm on the ground. Our people are on the ground all the time. And we are, we understand the local issues and what people are facing. And then we advocate those at the national level in, in large part on their behalf. But um, because of our interest in protecting property rights, we do watch the environmental movement very, very closely. And that's why uh, at the end of the election last year, we started really diving into what, were, what was the environmental community 
working on? What were they studying? What were they pushing? And because we knew that's probably the policies that we would be facing over the next four years. And it was in that November kind of timeframe that we really started drilling into 30 by 30 because we identified it as the centerpiece of the environmental agenda for the next four years. And so we were up to speed on this. We understood it from the environmental perspective. Um, we understood the international push to get this into America, all of that before it was ever implemented on January 27th. Yes, it was part of President Biden's executive order, I believe, on climate change. He had a whole item list of things that would be prioritized via executive action, and certainly 3030 is one of that. What led you to focus more so on this issue in particular? Because it seems, apart from some social media messaging, internal documents, and some news releases, and perhaps the occasional TV hit, you haven't really heard this as an issue, except for maybe internally in conservation spaces, but why hasn't this been brought to the forefront a bit more, you think? Well, I think in our circles, it definitely is a high priority. Um, the landowners, our, our base really understands this and is fighting against it. But I think when the climate crisis executive order was signed, and they actually don't say climate change, the executive order says climate crisis. Um, it was a 57 page executive order that had so many things in it that we really needed to pay attention to. And in the executive order, what was attributed to 30 by 30 were just two simple paragraphs. And it says that the president wants to conserve at least 30% of the lands and oceans. So if you, if you didn't know what 30 by 30 was and you read that executive order, it, you would have missed it because it just, it wouldn't have come up on the radar. And I think that's a lot of what happened. And um, when we read it, of course, we knew exactly what they were talking about because we've been studying, we've been studying what they were intending to do and even their playbook on how they intended to implement it in America. So we, we weren't surprised by the soft language in the executive order. But also affirmation for that was the Department of Interior the same day issued a fact sheet which in which they clarify and make very clear what their intent was with 30 by 30, which is where they said, you know, currently only 12% of the land is currently protected at the level that they're trying to achieve for 30 by 30. And that we know what that 12% is. It's very, very restricted lands, wilderness, national parks, conservation easements in perpetuity, state parks, those kind of items. That's that's what they identify. And so you know, just from our study of it, we knew what they were intending to do. We under we were ex fully expecting them to initiate it with soft language to get people to buy into the program here in America, um, especially all the language that they're going to protect property rights. That's all in their playbook of what they were going to do. And so, um, when it first came out, we we were ready for it. We knew we knew what to expect. So we went to work immediately. I mean, that day we started working with counties. The first local government resolution to oppose this was, was passed three weeks later. And our first guide to fight 30 by 30 came out free downloadable on the internet and started spreading across the country uh, that uh, at the same time that that first resolution was passed. And we're now up to, I think uh, I'd have to do a new count, but the last time I counted, we had over 120 counties across the nation that have filed resolutions to oppose 30 by 30. So, you know, there's some circles where it hasn't really reached 
um, the reached, I think, the educational process where people are aware of it as to what it really is. Uh, but those areas that have been educated are absolutely opposed to this. Where do you believe the Biden administration came up with that 12% figure? Because according to data from the Department of Interior, one of their sub-agencies, when you calculate uh, kind of this land that is supposed to be protected and shielded from any activity, the wilderness areas that you mentioned, no lands for multiple use. I think when you calculate all of those lands that are already kind of held off from any intensive or recreational use for the most part, I think the number comes out to 41%, according to what I'd been told by the Western Caucus, seeing those numbers myself. So why are they downplaying the actual percentage of lands and waters conserved or preserved if that number has already been exceeded, that 30% has already been exceeded? Because their level of protection is much stricter than what maybe you and I and probably your audience would consider conserved lands. We have to remember, and, and this is all in their material, this is not about conservation. This is absolutely about control. This is being pushed by people that don't believe in the individual's right to own private property. And I know that that seems you know, kind of extreme, but that's exactly where these people are coming from. They don't trust the individual to own private property and make proper decisions on land. This, this whole agenda began from the international community that believes in socialism and pushes socialism. And, and we have to understand that to understand why it's being pushed the way it is. The 12% the comes from the USGS gap analysis. Mm-hmm. The gap analysis is um, USGS has been cataloging America's land and, and putting it in one of four levels of protection. The most severe level of protection is gap one. The second is gap two, the most restricted. Gap three is largely what you're talking about when you say these lands are conserved. There are federal lands that still have uses on those lands. So you can graze it, you can mine it, you can, there's lots of recreation on it. Um, there's, it's not so protected. So gap three doesn't qualify. And of course, gap four is largely our private lands, which is about six, 60% of the nation. So um, what, what makes up the 12% is gap one and gap two. And that is our national parks, our wilderness areas, national wildlife refuges, conservation easements in perpetuity on private lands, and uh, the like things like um, just kind of other re- restricted areas like state parks and you know county parks, local parks. That's what makes up the 12%. So when you think about those devices, think of wilderness areas. I mean, wilderness areas, that is really their ultimate, what they want to get to. Um, it is no management. In other words, the land is turned back over to the animals and uh, very, very, very limited human occupation. And I know, you know, those are the areas that the hunting community, I'm sure, can really identify with because those are the most restrictive and only the most athletic of the hunters can even access those areas because you have to pack everything in and, and pack your kill out. You can't drive in and you know get half a mile from your kill site because there can be no motorized equipment. It's also the place because you can't uh, extinguish a fire that starts there. It's a no management area. 
It's also the place that starts these big wildfires in the West. And then because they're not controlled, they grow out of proportion. And then they start uh, burning out other people's lands um, as they get out of control. But that is that is what they want. They are not seeking they are not seeking conservation because if you were seeking conservation, you would not be putting more lands in wilderness and doing those kind of things. Um, they are looking at at protection of the land, which with no development, no use by man. That's certainly the goal. And I think when people hear of opposition to this, they say, well, you want to encroach on nature. And this is not just limited to multiple uses on public lands, like grazing, ranching. They even want to get hunters and anglers off public lands too, and very severely restrict who can access. So in their mind, they want preservationists only to access or just to leave it untouched. And you're not coming up with the uh, notion that it's an international cause out of thin air. There's actually a very big track record on the so-called campaign for nature. I remember reading this early on this year that 50 countries had committed to protecting at least 30% of world the world's land and water by 2030. They were supposed to hold a summit in China of all places, which is no good measure of environmental stewardship, if we can uh, say that. But um, repeatedly, yeah, they've said that this is an international goal. They reaffirmed it at the most recent climate summit in Glasgow. Uh, Jeff Bezos has even put millions of dollars behind 3030 in his own right as well. I believe it is 261 million to further the 3030 initiative to protect 30% of land and sea and things of that sort. So this is not just a movement exclusive to the United States. I believe they largely adopted it from the UN and several other places as well. So yes, this is a very internationally focused issue that they want to impose on the United States, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that the problem that they had was when it came to America, they have a big problem, which is we have private property rights, which is unusual uh, from the other nations that they're working on. So like Canada, the agenda, the 30 by 30 push right now is called target one. And they are trying, actually their goal is 25% by 2025. But when they come to America, they had to approach this a little differently than they do uh, other nations because we the land is owned by the people. That's how we were founded. That's what makes us so unique and prosperous. And you know, here we are very unusual that we are a nation that the people are trusted with the land. The people have the right to own land and therefore have control over their own destiny and their governor, their their government. And so that's what makes it unusual. Well, that makes it very hard to get this kind of a campaign implemented. And so, the, the playbook to really read on this, if you really want to understand what their agenda is and how they are, are trying to implement it in America, the, the piece to read is a piece by the Center for American Progress called How Much Nature Should We Keep, Should America Keep? And, and that's really was written for the other environmental organizations as here's how we explain this to the American people to get them to buy into this agenda. And so it's all based around conservation, about working lands with working uh, landowners. Uh, definitely, we want to make these lands open and open to hunting and recreation, which, as you astutely pointed out, 
they they really like to court that crowd, but eventually these lands get cut off from them as well once they get once they get them secure. Um, but they that whole playbook is there, and um, it really explains their agenda and what they're trying to do. But but that's really the key is to understand that this this really isn't about conservation. If it was about conservation, as Governor Ricketts says, I think better better than anybody, they would leave it to the states and the landowners to conserve the land and not transfer the control to a federal bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., because, you know, the best lands that uh, the best well taken care of lands are the lands with the landowner on the land closest to the land, the small landowner, whether that be the private landowner or the landowner in the West who has lived on that property and has grazed that property his entire life, passed it down as three, four generations, and they steward that land and pass it down in better shape than it came. That small landowner is the key to good conservation. And this kind of a program eliminates that. Speaking of Governor Ricketts, you have been working with him. And he was probably one of the first lawmakers with, I would say, national clout to really shine a light on this. And back in April, he and 14 other governors wrote a letter expressing their concerns with 3030. And I believe in June of this year, he signed an executive order regarding it to stop it. So could you speak about his involvement on the issue and how your organization helped kind of draw awareness to it, to him and, and others? Yeah, when we, um, I was working with the commissioner in Nebraska, the uh, Tanya Store, who we've, we've worked on property rights issues probably off and on for 15 years. And um, I was doing some work with her county there when all of this 30 by 30 uh, issue came up. And so uh, got her educated on, on this and she had recommended that we do two things when I was in state because I was planning a, a trip in state. And that was number one, uh, we got the information into Governor Ricketts office um, to make sure that he was aware of it. And then also we did the first public educational forum on 30 by 30. And that was in Valentine, Nebraska in the first week of March. And, um, and she told me expect 50 to 100 people. We had over 350 turnout. And that's a little tiny community. But people were very concerned about this. Governor Rickert's private, prior to that meeting had come out with his, his statement opposing 30 by 30. He's the first governor in the nation to do so. And then it was very fortunate because I was able to um, meet with Governor Ricketts the next day and sit down with him face to face. And he was able to ask questions on this program. And in that meeting, we asked if he would lead a letter to the other governors because we knew that this, this just had, hadn't been on people's radar yet. It hadn't made it there yet. And so he said, yes, absolutely. And so uh, he asked for just a draft letter that he could take a look at. And we provided that to him. And then his team put together what they wanted to circulate and he got that circulated and, and 15 governors signed, uh, signed with him on that to oppose 30 by 30. And important to that letter is there's two pages of substantive questions that the governors were asking of the Biden administration. Things like, should there be a programmatic environmental impact statement? Which agency is gonna run this? How much money is this going to take? Where's the authorization for this program? What are the states going to be expected to do? Very good substantive questions, which the Biden administration still has not answered the governors on. And that tells you a lot. That's very interesting. And he's hosted a lot of town halls to draw awareness to the issue. Is that correct? 
Yes, he has been fantastic. Um, you know, I did a, a, a briefing with him on Zoom where I went through all of the documents that uh, the environmental community has in place to implement 30 by 30. And, um, you know, we went through all these documents. He is very astute. And still to this day, he has asked me the toughest questions on 30 by 30. He really, when he gets into an issue, he understands it from top to bottom. Uh, very impressive. And we went through all of that. And then uh, he, from, from that point, I think he has done over 20 town halls in Nebraska, where he has gone into the small communities and met with the landowners and told them why he was concerned, answered their questions, and has made clear to them that if they see any federal overreach, they are to contact his office. He wants to know about it. So he is literally standing between the landowners in Nebraska and the federal government on this. He is a great example, and we would love to see more governors take that step. Aside from the 15 governors so far that have signed on to oppose 3030, are more potentially jumping in? You know, I think that they're all kind of waiting to see what the Biden administration is going to do. And that's actually a very dangerous position to be in because the Biden administration is very actively implementing this program and people don't even know it's happening in their communities. Um, you know, I did a, I think I told you last week when we visited, I had just gone through the proposed budget for Fish and Wildlife Service and I counted 37 mentions in there of actions, appropriations for things to implement the 30 by 30 agenda, 37 mentions. I mean, they are, they are actively putting this program in on the ground right now through the conservation programs. Fish and wildlife in particular is utilizing the Endangered Species Act and all of the different devices they have under that and authorities and restrictions that they can use through critical habitat to implement this right now. The other thing that's very interesting, and I don't know how deep you want me to get in the weeds on this, but there is an additional appropriation in the Build Back Better Act that was passed by Congress for $40 million for interagency consultation for, to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I'll take a moment and try to explain that. When an endangered species is listed, they also designate, most of the time, they designate critical habitat as well. So they're trying to protect the habitat where that species lives. Now, the critical habitat designation does not apply to private land unless, and this is in the ESA, unless there is a federal connection to that land, which can be funding, program, or authority. Now, a federal program funding would be something like the Conservation Reserve Program, where a private landowner signs a contract with NRCS to put the lands in conservation, so basically don't farm, graze, or do any of that for 10 years or 15 years, the contracts are going up to 15 years. And they think they're setting aside that land for the good of conservation and they get paid for that. So that federal funding then becomes the nexus to their land to now require critical habitat to essentially apply to that private land. Most landowners have no clue that that's even in there. And part of the reason is because in prior administrations, like under the Trump administration, 
where his um, pers- his push was less regulation and more productivity, and he tried to govern with a light hand uh, as far as restrictions to landowners. So those kind of actions, uh, such as as um, using that intern, making those re- restrictions apply to the private lands, were not really pushed. But and what we've been telling landowners is expect that to change now because we what we have is we have had this last year the Department of Agriculture really push landowners into signing up for these conservation reserve programs. They are here to help them. They've got lots of money. They're giving more money for it. They're getting more money appropriated. They want the lands and conservation easements in perpetuity because that gives them another great tool where they can put these um, conservation restrictions on. And so the Department of Ag is pushing landowners to get into these conservation reserve programs. While on the other hand, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is making budgetary requests for more money so that they can do the interagency consultations, which allows them to come in and look at these lands to see if there is any endangered species implications. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the stick, I would say. Uh, They're coming in with the regulations, the policies, the restrictions, and Department of Agriculture is the carrot trying to get landowners to sign up under these programs, get the federal connection put on those private lands so that they can come in and start putting the restrictions on. And I don't think there's opposition to conservation easements, but I think I share a similar concern that if you're not voluntarily choosing to put your land in a conservation easement and the government is kind of forcing you to do it and in perpetuity, I think that completely undermines probably good practices when the program is done effectively. And I think some listening may be like, well, we shouldn't have any qualms with it, but I think you'll find even among conservationists that if it's not landowners voluntarily putting uh, their land into a conservation easement or, or agreeing to that on their own, but they're in turn being forced to do it and in, in, in perpetuity, I think people even in the conservation space will be alarmed by that prospect. Yeah, I think we have to take a very close look at whether or not um, the practice of putting these e- easements on in perpetuity is a good practice. And I know this is the place where I think Governor Ricketts is absolutely correct and he has taken a stand against the conservation easements in perpetuity because what, what people don't understand about the conservation easements, they say, look, it's a property right and you know the landowner can still do what they want to do, but that is not the case. It is a property right when you sign that conservation easement. Absolutely, you have that right to do to do that. But what you have to understand you have just signed away is control of the property. So now that what that easement does is it gives the, it creates a conservation purpose for the property that is now controlled by the land trust or the federal government in perpetuity forever. And that conservation purpose is now the priority purpose for the land. So that means the landowner is his, his rights are secondary to the conservation purpose. So when you have sold control of your land, it is no longer private property. That's one of the fundamental elements of private property. So we say, yes, it's a private property right before you sign that easement. But once you sign that conservation easement in perpetuity, it's no longer a private property right. And that's what you really have to understand about the conservation easement device. And the government agrees with that. 
That is why in that very restrictive 12% that is permanently protected today, conservation easements in perpetuity are included in that. And the other thing, you know, they will say, well, you know, the landowner gets to continue to do what he does on that land that he's doing today. So he doesn't lose anything. But that's actually, I don't know if you've ever read a conservation easement. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm every time I see one, I'm kind of shocked that a landowner would, would sign up for these because the, 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 the contract is fairly lengthy. There's only a couple paragraphs generally that speaks to what the conservation purpose is. And it can be protecting the American burying beetle uh, under the rules and regulations of the Fish and Wildlife Service. So it's very loose, very open. That's now the controlling purpose of the land. But there will be uh, you know, eight, nine, 10 pages of restrictions on the landowners, what they can and can't do on their property. And that everything has to be explicit in that that contract, the landowner has to spell out absolutely everything that they want to be able to do in the future that they're doing now in order, in, in order to continue. Otherwise, they're gonna to have to go back to the land trust for permission to do anything different. And if you have to go to, and, and then that's questionable if that's even gonna be allowed. But if you have to go to somebody for permission to say, do something like take a, take a, a meadow that you are currently flood irrigating for, for for hay that you harvest, and you're allowed to do that under the conservation easement. 10 years later, the technology is changing so that it makes so much more sense for you to put pivots on that land, irrigate that way, use less water, it's more efficient, it's better for the environment, better for the wildlife, um, but you can't make that change without the permission from the land trust, and then that's even questionable as to whether or not that will be allowed. So, the conservation easement, you have to understand, it's a very, very restrictive device. And most landowners, when they get into it, you know, they, they're told all the great things about the conservation easement. And they're, they're told they're going to be able to do this, you know, they're going to be able to keep this land from being developed uh, forever. And so that's very appealing to landowners because, frankly, that's why they're there. They love that lifestyle. They don't want to live in a city around buildings. They like the open lifestyle. Um, and so that's appealing to them. But what typically happens is the land trust or the government does not tell them the other parts of the contract that, that are going to be, that their kids are going to have to deal with. So the conservation easement, I think, I think what makes a lot of sense, and I've heard a lot of conservationists say this as well, is the conservation easement in perpetuity is a big problem because that's forever. And eventually, eventually that agriculture operation is gonna to have to go away because if you can't make changes to that operation, uh, you will eventually run out of business because you just can't keep up with, with um, technology. And the climate is always changing, so you have to be adaptive. And that's what that conservation easement takes away that, that choice from the landowner to do that. So I think um, what's going on in Nebraska, I think is really interesting to watch right now because they have uh, a law that's been on the books, I think for about 20 years, which gives the counties the ability to issue a special use permit to either approve or deny a conservation easement. It's a very smart law because in Nebraska, they have found that like the wetlands reserve program when a conservation easement is put in under that, it devalues the land by 40%. So counties that have a lot of these have no budget 
they have no income. Uh, they they lose their tax base, that property tax base. And so um, they can, in Nebraska, they can review these. And I will tell you a situation that just occurred in Nebraska. Uh, a conservation easement was denied. It was for the Wetland Reserve Program under the NRCS just yesterday in a county in Nebraska. And because it came before the county, those county commissioners took a look at it, asked a lot of questions, realized that the entire contract was not uh, included in that application, asked for more. And in that conversation, then the landowner uh, started asking questions that they hadn't asked before. And the landowner walked away from it saying, I had no idea I would have had to do all these things. Um, so just by educating through that process, I think it's been very helpful for landowners to see the conservation easements in perpetuity. We highly, highly recommend people stay away from those. I've seen like in Florida, I think maybe they have better control of their conservation easements. It may be very state to state and county and, and all that, but yeah, certainly, um, I don't think that should become the gold standard that everyone is going to willingly put land in a conservation easement that doesn't work for every setting, every individual, every family. And so, yeah, it should be a choice rather than a mandate uh, with respect to that. But with respect to, let's move over to kind of the federal opposition mounting towards 3030. So we've seen congressional Republicans largely oppose this. We've seen this in the House of Representatives and in conjunction with the Senate and C Congressional Western Caucus, they re released an alternative to the America Be the Beautiful plan. So what do you think has been effective with that alternative? Do you think there are some shortcomings with it? What is your response to kind of the federal response in terms of opposition to 3030? Well, I think that one of the things that the uh, Biden administration did was when they came out with their, their first um, report on how this was gonna be implemented, what they the first thing they did is they rebranded this from 30 by 30 to America the Beautiful, uh, which, which it's a marketing campaign. And the second thing they did in this report is they say that this is to conserve and restore the lands, not preserve the lands. However, then they fail to define what conserve is because they find that's difficult. It's hard to define that. And they don't define the difference between conserve and preserve. Well, if you go back to that original report, the report I talked about that came out from the Center for American Progress, how much nature should America keep? They have a very clear definition in there of what, uh, what this program is to be, to meet the 30 by 30 uh, definition. And so it's very clear. It's no, no product, no development, no extraction, no use of the land at all. So we know that that's pretty clear. And the other thing to understand is the Center for American Progress has a number of their key people that were instrumental in that report uh, throughout the Biden administration in high policy positions. Uh, for probably Kate Kelly is in the Department of Interior at a very high policy position. She helped craft that report. The actual author that's on the, the cover of that report is Matt Lee Ashley, and he is the chief of staff for the chairman of the Council on Environmental Quality, who is the chair of the 30 by 30 task force. So you this is what and this is what they are implementing, but they are trying to get there gently for the American people to get this done. It's a, it's a progression. So getting back to the America the Beautiful report that they released, 
the key thing that I think uh, the congressional uh, report that came out from the Western Caucus that I think was really good that they keyed in on is America the Beautiful talks about conserve and restore. And what I always pointed out is what lands do they think need to be restored? Because I know the private lands, I live in a private land state now, I live in Texas. And I would put our lands up against the real restrictive federal lands, the 12% they're talking about any day. It is not the private lands that need to be restored. It is the lands that are in the federal hands that need to be restored. That's where I think our worst um, managed lands are. And that's what I really love about the congressional report is it really put a spotlight on that and enumerates all the different ways that the federal government should be investing in getting their own lands that they already own and manage and have control of up to the same level that our private lands and other lands are already conserved. And so I think that when that came out with that, I thought that was beautiful. That was a great response. And do you think they have the ability to do more? I know congressionally speaking, it's really hard for given the current makeup, kind of the deadlock we see in Congress to see any legislative action to counter perhaps federal overreach on this issue. But are you optimistic that in 2022, maybe as more lawmakers become aware of 3030 and its many implications that they will perhaps legislatively combat this, maybe at the grassroots level, what do you think will be seen in 2022 on this front? You mean to to stop this, to stop 30 by 30? I think you're going to see some state actions. I think it's going to come up a lot to the states for this next year of taking action that can uh, stop the federal overreach into the states. And that's going to be really important because how they're implementing this through these federal conservation programs and also uh, on the federal lands is through, you know, just upping the the restrictions on already existing federal lands. So I think anything that can be done at the local level and the state level is going to be very, very important. Um, at the federal level and in the, in, the, uh, in, in the, the Congress and Senate, you know, until there's a, a change of um, policymakers that believe once again in the American principles and property rights, I think it's going to be very difficult for anything necessarily to go forward. However, you know, there's a great bill that has been, that was led by Representative Bobert, and she really, she's the first one that we really started communicating with on 30 by 30. And to give you a little background, she's um, the first county that issued the resolution to oppose 30 by 30, three weeks after this was initiated, is Garfield County, Colorado. And Garfield County is in Representative Bobert's district. And so they went to her immediately and brought her up to speed on what 30 by 30 was. And she went back to Congress and started getting her colleagues uh, very well educated on this. And so she spearheaded a lot of that. And then she spearheaded the bill uh, the, to terminate 30 by 30. I think that is really an important piece of legislation that policymakers should look at signing on because it does a number of key things. It's written in such a way that it stops 30 by 30 activities, um, whether or not they're attached to 30 by 30. So, in, uh, and let me explain this a little differently. The the president does not have the authority to unilaterally go through 
and through an executive order decide to fundamentally change how we are going to manage lands in America and to decide that now we are going to conserve 30% of these lands. He doesn't have that authority. That is Congress's authority. So the executive order itself uh, is unauthorized. And you can go back and read those sections. He doesn't cite any authority for it either. That resides in the power of Congress. And so um, the, the bill, the, but, but how the president is implementing it is by using the existing programs that are already in place, the Endangered Species Act, the Conservation Reserve Program, other ways that he can, he can use existing programs to implement the 30 by 30 agenda. And so what the Bobert, Bird, Bobert bill does is it um, stops any funding to anything that um, is tied to 30 by 30. And then the other thing it does, that, which is I think really important, especially to the Western states, is it has a provision that there can be no federal land acquisitions in states that already have 15% or more of their lands in, uh, owned by the federal government. So that's a, that's a really important provision for the Western states who do not need more federal land. <laughs> they, they have plenty. They are definitely carrying their load uh, for the rest of the country on that. So that, but that's a bill. Um, there's a companion in the House, in the Senate as well, that, you know, that, that's what I think would be really good for people to ask their representatives and senators to sign on to. So that that's there and that's ready. And when there is a change of power, that's, that's there ready to go. We don't have to think about what we need to do to stop this. It's already in place. That can be moved forward. We will certainly explore this next year. Hopefully we'll get to uh, come to your area and to the various different states where this battle is unfolding. And I, I look forward to working with you to help kind of learn more about the issue when we do some filming next year. But Margaret, where could everyone connect with you, the organization, and learn how to express their concerns with 3030? Well, our website is americanstewards.us. And then we have also put up a website that's stop30by30.americanstewards.us that people can go to and learn a lot about 30 by 30. Um, and so either of those places, you can go one and get to the other. So those are two great places to go. And you can sign up for our newsletter. We produce a publication called Liberty Matters, which goes out bi-weekly. And that's where we're really keeping people up to date on kind of the, the latest things going on on 30 by 30. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and informing my listeners about this in even greater detail than I could because I've only just scratched the surface topically. But since your boots on the ground efforts have really just started to kind of uh, get more attention, obviously you've involved a lot of governors and lawmakers and we wouldn't see opposition, I would say, be, and, uh, unless it was for your organization. So thank you so much for for your work and, and for shining a light on this issue and why it masquerading as conservation is really just kind of confusing people and really kind of making it distressing for those who care about private property rights, true conservation efforts, and so much more. So Margaret, thank you so much again for joining District of Conservation. My pleasure. And thanks for shining the light on this. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, 
comb through some episodes and leave us reviews. We'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks really easy to find me so engage with me there i'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest i'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries i get a lot of requests and my schedule is also quite busy so you'll see guests come from me and i'm but like i said i'm always open to different guests coming on the show thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode